Well, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 15 this morning, starting in verse 5. And this is a text that we're going to begin, which will take us all the way through chapter 16, verse 21. So as you can already guess, we're not going to get to the whole thing this morning, but I do want to look at the major themes in it and really probe it for the big theological ideas that God might have for us here. We've been studying the scriptures in Revelation leading up to the final judgment of God that is poured out upon the earth right before the Lord returns in chapter 19 to establish his kingdom. In chapter 14, we saw that prior to this judgment, God uh, sends this final proclamation into the earth by his angelic messengers, calling the earth to fear him and to glorify him and to worship him. And then after that, there was the signal given at the end of chapter 14. The hour has come. The reaping has begun. But as the preparation is being made for this final judgment, we might have been a little surprised last week at the beginning of chapter 15 to find that John takes us to the scene around the throne of God in heaven where those who have already gone on to be with the Lord, in fact, the idea is that most of them have been killed for their witness to Jesus Christ. They're singing about the judgment. In a real sense, cheering God on as he begins to pour out his wrath. And it might sound a little disturbing when you think about it, but they are celebrating the most horrific, cataclysmic judgment ever leveled against humankind, ever. For those who have refused to turn to God, this is their final doom. After this judgment and the wrath of Christ, all of the unrepentant are dead and confined to hell. Once Jesus Christ comes and he wipes out everybody who is against him, Anybody who's left alive is a believer going into the millennial kingdom. Everybody else has been wiped out. And their only hope after that is waiting to be resurrected, but then they're resurrected only for one thing, and that is to be condemned for eternity to the lake of fire. So what might seem on the surface to be a coarse and insensitive kind of thing to sing and rejoice about this is really the perspective that these believers have who have been made perfect, who are no longer looking at the world through fallen eyes. And though it may be difficult for us to understand here and now, these perfected saints can rejoice in God's judgment and look upon it with satisfaction and gladness because they understand at least four divine realities that we looked at briefly last week. And these four divine realities can be discerned through the very song that they sing. This is just a little bit by way of review, but we saw last week that the works of God are inscrutable. In other words, they cannot be fully comprehended. Even with the unfallen minds that these believers are rejoicing uh, with the Lord in heaven, they don't fully understand what God is doing. We will never be able to fully comprehend what God does. But we know that God always does what is right. And then secondly, uh, they, they sing that the ways of God are right. They also confess that the essence of God is holy. So the works of God are inscrutable, the ways of God are right, the essence of God is holy. They sing, you alone are holy, and the fact that God is holy actually makes the judgment necessary. I'm going to focus in on that before we're done this morning, God's holiness. And finally, the glad song of the perfected saints helps us to appreciate that the worship of God 
is inevitable. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it is going to happen eventually. They will either bow gratefully in love and devotion because God is their God or begrudgingly under protest because they have rejected God and actually hate him, but they must admit who he is. It, made me think so, it makes me think of the demand of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3 where the image is set up, you remember? Not unlike the image of the beast that we saw in Revelation chapter 13. And a blazing furnace of fire was the fate of anyone who would not worship Nebuchadnezzar's image. And what Nebuchadnezzar said to the three young Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is in essence what the wicked on the earth will say to every believer who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Bow or burn. And yet the merciful cry of God goes throughout the whole earth. No, you bow or burn. And that is what we're seeing played out here. And by the way, the Lord would say to them, you can only create burning that lasts for a moment, but my burning will last forever. And sadly, after all of the warning God has given not to follow Satan and the beast and the false prophet, after God has demonstrated his power again and again over the earth, filling the earth with his glory, with the call to repent, the day and the hour of judgment finally arrives. And that's what we pick up in verse 5 of chapter 15. So let's read together all the way through chapter 16 and get our minds around the whole event. He says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go, And pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, it's an amen. True and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl 
on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed to the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, this unholy trinity, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic signs performing, uh, demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the, day, on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. There's a concept in the area of crime and punishment that we call ironic justice. And guys, I'm going to have to ask you to advance the screen because for some reason this stopped working. And uh, if you can go two screens ahead, that would be really helpful, just so you can see these words that I'm talking about, okay? So just for dramatic effect, I don't know. Um, But ironic justice takes place not only when a person is uh, punished for his wrongdoing, but when they are punished in a way that uniquely and unexpectedly fits the crime. Some of the most well-known examples of ironic justice, I think, take place in the book of Esther, right? Here's Haman. You know the story this proud, position-seeking member of the royal court. Everyone bows down to Haman and tells him how great he is, except for one person, Mordecai. And this gets under Haman's skin. And out of arrogance and meanness, Haman gains permission from the king to enact a law that on a certain day forthcoming, all of the Jews would be exterminated. It was their holocaust. None of them left alive whether men, women, or children. And that order was signed, and the Jews were upset, and they were waiting for that day, and they were wondering what God was going to do to rescue them. But Haman does not realize that Esther, the queen herself, is a Jew. And neither does Haman realize that the man he hates, Mordecai, is Esther's uncle. Haman builds gallows for Mordecai so he can execute him by hanging in a way that everybody can see what happens to any person who does not bow to Haman. But when Haman comes into the palace to secure permission from the king to hang Mordecai, the king says, ah, Haman, question for you. 
what should I do for the man that I would like to greatly honor? Well, of course, Haman thinks that the king's talking about him because that's what proud, arrogant people think. So Haman says, why? The king should uh, let him wear the royal robes and let him ride on the royal horse and uh, give him the crown for a day to wear on his head. And, and you should have an official lead him through the streets saying, this is a, a great man that, God, uh, that, that, that the king has chosen to honor. And, and this is what the king does to the man who pleases him. So the king said, that's an excellent idea. There is a man who uncovered a plot against my life a while ago. I want you to get the robes and the horse and the crown. I want you to lead this man through the city. Perhaps you know him. His name is Mordecai. <laughs> now that is ironic justice. And Maybe you're too familiar with the story of Esther, but if you read it and try to pretend like you don't know what the story is saying already, you're like, yes, that's exactly what should have happened. And instead of... Uh, publicly hanging Mordecai, Haman was forced to publicly honor Mordecai, lead him through the streets like a servant, exalting the man he had hated on the king's horse. It probably was not a very long journey. He probably took shortcuts through the city. He probably didn't cry very loud, but he had to do what the king said. But you know, we, we all know it got worse than that for Haman because he wouldn't let go of his arrogance. Because when the king learned that Esther was a Jew and that Haman had effectively plotted to lead a genocide against the queen's people, he ordered Haman hanged on the very gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai. You see, that punishment fit the crime in a unique and surprising way. Instead of exalting himself by humiliating another person in death, he was the one humiliated in death. Well, his intended victim was greatly exalted. That is ironic justice. And we can admit the fact that there might just be a little something kind of satisfying about that, that a person who is doing something wrong receives justice in a way that really suits the crime. Have you ever said, you know, he got just what he deserved or she had that coming to her? Have you ever had someone driving behind you who is really annoyed at you because you are keeping the speed limit? And finally, they get around you and they obnoxiously zoom on by. And do you secretly hope and pray that there's a speed trap waiting for them up ahead and they're going to be pulled over by the... I know it's in the flesh, but it's still fun, right? Uh, it's, you hope that they're pulled over and you could just like wave at them as you go by. You know, God bless, you know, have a nice day. I mean, you have to admit, that's what goes through your mind. We were in a traffic jam somewhere years ago because they were repairing... Uh, the, uh, these big sections of concrete road surfaces. And so we were in, the, it was in July, it's really hot, there's bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic, and you're, you're going just like a mile in an hour, and everybody's grumpy. But then this guy on a motorcycle rides by, going in between the cars, and he's honking his horn, and he's waving at everybody like, you losers, ha-ha, and he just takes off, and he went off across the pylon barrier on the side. We all watched him, and he must have gotten into some wet concrete because he wiped out in the wet concrete, and his bike got filled with concrete, and he spun around, and then he had to stand up in front of everybody, and horns were honking, and people got out of their cars, and they were cheering because this guy got they thought exactly what he deserved. It may be one of the consequences, I think, of being made in the image of God who is perfectly just, but there's something fulfilling that we recognize. 
when justice is deserved and a just justice is meted out, or when in humility, and we have to do this from time to time, we have to say to ourselves, you know, yeah, I, I really deserved that. I got what I had coming to me. We have this sense of balance inside. It's a fallen sense of balance. It's not perfect because it's, our sin nature impacts it, but it is a, a, a sense of balance all the same. And when we come to this whole passage, we find that it describes the most intense and horrifying judgment that God will ever pour out upon the earth. But the passage suggests throughout that there's this sense of justice, even ironic justice. In fact, if you will look again back at verses 4 through 7 of chapter 16, this is the third judgment or the plague, and it's only, only one where you have this extended reflection on the meaning of the judgment. John says, notice, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. He says, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. That is ironic justice. It's, it's as if God is saying, you, you like blood shedding so much? Then here, now blood is in your streams. Now it's in your wells. Now it's coming out your faucets when you turn them on. Then there's this refrain to the chorus sung by the altar in verse 7. John says, I heard the altar saying, uh, and, and, and uh, it's saying, yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So the altar is not speaking. It's an inanimate object, but it's, it's the souls who are under the altar. Remember back in Revelation chapter 6, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. But they were killed for their witness of Jesus. For the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are the voices coming from the altar of those whose blood had been spilled. So the angel in charge of the water says, this is what those who spilled the blood of the saints and prophets deserve. And the refrain comes back, amen. Yes, Lord God Almighty, this is what we've been waiting for. True and just are your judgments. It's ironic justice. I want you to look closely at this phrase at the bottom of the screen from verse 6. It is what they deserve. There is a Greek phrase here that's translated, it is what they deserve. The Greek phrase is literally simply, they are worthy. They are worthy. We've encountered this word worthy in the New Testament before in other contexts. It has to do with equilibrium, balance, bringing up the other side of the scales so that it's equal a worthy weight, for instance. And what the angel is saying here is that the punishment fits the crime. It is a most severe, yet worthy judgment. In fact, looking at the entire text, I think that we can see at least three reasons in particular that this judgment is worthy of the people going to judgment. It's a horrible thing. And we dealt with this last week. We don't understand all the time everything that's in the mind of God. We can't possibly understand everything. But this is a worthy judgment. 
And I'll tell you what all these three things are. We're only going to deal with one of them uh, this morning. But first of all, uh, I said we're going to go back to the idea of God's holiness. That is one of the reasons that this judgment is worthy. Secondly, human sin. And the two sins in particular that are not only highlighted here, but throughout Revelation is one, a refusal to worship God. And secondly, a persecution of God's people. Not only do they commit themselves to the false worship of the beast, but they also pursue and capture and kill those who worship God only. And those sins, those two sins, go hand in hand because it is uncomfortable for people who worship anyone or anything besides the one true God when you or I are around and our loves are known because our very presence is an indictment against false gods, false worldviews, false worship. The world can't stand having those around reminding them that they are not believing in what God says is true. And finally, human hardness. If I can go one more here, you guys. There you go. Thank you. Human hardness. And I wonder if that struck you when we read the text through. I tried to sort of bring that out as I read it, but all of the judgments are coming down. You would think people would be crying out with mercy. I, I might imagine maybe stepping into the shoes of somebody in that circumstance and thinking, you know, We're sorry, God. We didn't believe in you, but we do now. Is it too late? We want to turn to you. We want to trust you. That's what we think is is happening when we just think of Revelation and the judgment of God coming. And God says, no, it's too late. That's it. And and, and, uh, I'm bringing the judgment anyway. But that's not what people are saying. You would think that knowing the heart of God, they would be snatched from the flame even at the last minute. But they will not repent. Verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. Verse 11, they did not repent of their deeds. Verse 21, they cursed God because of the severity of the plague. And the idea, again, is that they cursed rather than repent. These are hardened hearts that are set against their creator. In return, they, they refuse to turn to him in humility even as they go to judgment. That is why they are judged. So as we work through this text, which I, I plan to do over the course of just today and, and, and next Lord's Day, uh, I'd like us to consider the worthiness of this judgment, why it is deserved. Let's begin by looking at the first reason, God's holiness. Now, once again, we're going to be in Revelation 16. Let's look at verse 5. The angel in charge of the waters cries, Just are you, O holy one. And notice the holiness of God is highlighted here who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. So we've got God's holiness, and we have the God who is eternal. He says, who is and who was. And all throughout Revelation, we have the God who is, who was, who is to come. He doesn't leave the who is to come part in here, but the idea is the same. He's pointing to God's eternality. He's the God who lives forever. He is holy in his essence, and his holiness goes on forever. What is God's holiness anyway? Well, we hear what holiness means a lot, and we hear the word separation. And that's true. Holiness does mean separation. If God is eternally holy, eternally separate, however, what does it mean that he's separated? What does separation have to do with holiness? If he's eternally holy eternally separate, then before he created all things, what was there for him to be separated from? 
if that's what holiness means. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. If you think God's holiness is his separation from sin, how was God holy before sin entered into the world? You might be tempted to think, well, maybe God became holy in comparison to what he had made. This is the kind of thing theologians think through, right? But that won't do because the problem with that line of reasoning is that the Bible makes God's holiness part of his essence. It's what makes him God. He has always been holy and he always will be holy. Holiness has to do with a particular aspect of separation. God is holy in the sense that he alone is the only one, what, which means that he is of infinite value. And everything he does and says and thinks is of infinite worth and becomes an absolute standard for anything he might happen to create. This is the reason God judges the world according to his holiness, We are sinful or righteous to the degree that we align with or do not align with this one-of-a-kind, unique standard that is God. But this proclamation by the angel in charge of the waters is not the only reason I'm saying that God's holiness is really filling up this sense of judgment in this text. We really see it at the very beginning of this text, starting back in chapter 15, verse 5. If you'll go back there with me, and we'll spend a little time here in this passage. Uh, uh, Revelation 15, verses 5 through 8. Here we witness the fact that the expression of God's holiness is the source from which all the judgments come. They come from his holiness. He says, after this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness. Notice the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. When we read the scripture sometimes, if we don't visualize what's happening, we stop thinking really about what's going on. There's a lot going on here. He's talking about the heavenly temple that we have seen in Revelation. He calls it the tent of witness. Because originally the temple, as you know, was a tent, a tabernacle. That's the fancy word for it. In the wilderness. Later, Solomon moved uh, God's uh, ark from, and all the other furniture from the tabernacle to a temple that was placed in Jerusalem. But even after Solomon built the temple, you see this in the Psalms sometimes, the sanctuary had been constructed as a tent for so long, it was almost a term of endearment to call the temple a tent. They were calling the tent a temple before there was a temple, and they called the temple a tent even after the temple was built. So keep that in mind when you read Revelation. You see this temple tabernacle imagery. Sometimes John says temple, sometimes he says tent. In fact, in the first verse of chapter 16, John says, says, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Well, what happened to the tabernacle? Now he's talking about the temple. He's talking about the same thing, the, the dwelling place of God in heaven, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple. If we can go back to verse uh, 15 and 17 of chapter 14 for a moment, when the angel announces that the hour has come, notice they come out of the temple to give the word to begin the reaping. So the judgment is coming from the temple. That is, it is coming from the holy throne of God. But here, going back to verse 5 of chapter 15, it says that the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. The word tent refers to the whole temple. 
Okay, see that there? The whole temple. There's two words for temple, commonly. Hieron, that's the Greek word for temple. When you're just referring to the temple, the whole temple complex. Uh, but naos refers to the holy place within the temple. The tent, when you see the word there, that's the whole temple. The, it refers to everything. But when you see the word sanctuary, that refers to the naos. That's the holy place. Sometimes we call this the holy of holies, the most holy place, the place where not even the priests were allowed to go in most instances. And the tent of witness is a way that the whole temple has been referred to since back in the Old Testament because in the holy of holies, the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant was kept there and it contained the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses. And so it was known as the tent that protects the witness from God, the word from God. So the divine word is at the center of the most holy place and it cries out the standard that is being upheld by which people are judged. The standard that Christ fulfilled in his first coming. It is out of this holy place that the angels come with seven plagues that are to be poured out in judgment upon the earth. Notice how they're dressed. It says here in this text, they're dressed in pure white, uh, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. I'm not going to take time to demonstrate this to you through the scriptures this morning, but basically what you have here are angels dressed as priests coming out of the temple, ready to do a priestly activity. And in verse 7, they're given these golden bowls. That's something you'll also find in the temple furniture in the Old Testament. There were these golden bowls that were used to pour out drink offerings unto the Lord. Sometimes they were used for offerings of incense. In Revelation, he, he doesn't distinguish which bowl he's talking about here. I, I, I think it's probably the one where they're pouring out the libation offering, and I'll talk about that a little bit next week. Um, but in Revelation, uh, the incense represents the prayers of God's people crying out to him, especially in asking how long before their vindication. So it's fitting that the wrath of God is to be poured out from one of these temple bowls. And John isn't specific about which temple bowl he says, but We'll look at that a little more closely next week. Notice also who gives the bowls to the angels. Did you catch this? One of the four living creatures. Some of you, do you remember who those are? We met them back in chapter four where they're first mentioned. And they come up every now and again in Revelation. I'll, I'll look back at that passage for just a second. Revelation 4, 6 through 8 says, around the throne of God on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. They represent the entire created order. And the four living creatures, each of them, with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, and what do they cry? They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There's his holiness and his eternality, hand in hand, once again. Thus, you have the proclamation of God's holiness, his absolute holiness, and you have the observation that he always lives forever. He is eternal. So we are not surprised when we go back to verse 7 in our text that we find the reference to God who lives forever and ever. So I want you to notice these expressions of God's wrath that are poured out on the earth. They're coming from the most holy place, the holy of holies. But there's one more description that, that, that should really astound us. I have to 
I have to say. In, in verse 8, look at, this, look at this description. It says, the, the, the sanctuary, the naos, the holy place was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Nobody could enter the sanctuary, even those angelic beings and those perfected saints in heaven. When God shows forth the presence of his power and glory, nobody can come near. I don't care who you are. And the idea of this heavenly temple filling with smoke shows God's pure power and holiness. If you know your Bible, you remember that you've seen, you've seen something like this before. If you go back to Exodus chapter 40, the very end of the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle is finally finished, God's presence fills the tabernacle. And one of the last things we read of in the whole book of Exodus is that the cloud covers the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And Moses, who, who spent so much time with God, his face glowed. He was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The same thing happened with Solomon dedicated the temple and offered a prayer of dedication in 2 Chronicles 7. The same thing happened. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the, te- on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. That was quite a dedication ceremony right there. So you have this, this, these two ideas of the, the house of God being filled with smoke, the first dedication and the second dedication. There's one other time that I can remember from Scripture. There's another one. Let me know afterwards. I couldn't think of any more. There's one other time I can remember from Scripture where there's a similar situation, and that is in Isaiah chapter 6. You know this passage really well. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called one to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And what did Isaiah do? He said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you really get a vision of God's holiness in his glory, the first thing that ought to go through your mind is, I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be here. I am unclean in front of that stark holiness of God. Now, we need to continue in this text, but I want to press the pause button for a second and just say, what does this all, all this mean for us right now? It means that God has every right to judge and his judgments are just and worthy because he is holy and he is forever. He is that unique standard that sets him apart from all other things that he has created. His holiness is the reason that the judgment comes from the heavenly temple and the most holy place within that temple. And when these last and terrible judgments are being poured out upon the earth, even in heaven, 
the angels and the perfected believers, all of whom were created by God, they have to vacate the immediate presence of God at this expression of his utter holiness. I don't know that we, even as believers in Christ, can appreciate all that God's holiness means for us. But if God's holiness makes his judgment worthy for those who are being judged, then we need to pray for God's grace and strive that we might be worthy of God's holiness. How awful it is for us to flippantly and unthoughtfully commit the same sins for which God is going to pour his wrath out upon the world. When instead, we ought to consider the holiness of God and tremble and yearn more and more to be like God. Of course, we cannot possibly be like God with any perfection at all, which is the reason Christ came and bore God's wrath for us and now resides within us and represents us before the throne of God so that we are pleasing in the sight of a holy God. We know that and we rest in that as believers in Christ. But he saved us so that we might be examples of God's holiness. We're on this side of the equation. I think that if there is a huge problem in our generation and even in the church, it is that we do not take God's holiness seriously. We really don't. We can, we can take it seriously in a way where we're judgmental of people all the time. I think the church has gone through those kinds of years. But if we're correcting that, we've overcorrected. We don't have a vision of His holiness that we have to run away from. We don't have a vision of his holiness that makes us cry out, woe is me, I am unclean. We need that vision. One that tells us, you know, I don't have a right to be here, but thank God I am through Christ. We replace that with a relaxed standard that is unworthy of God who is holy. I'm not talking about traditional expressions of holiness that come and go. I'm talking about how righteously we strive to live for God, how important it is to us to be worthy of his holiness. In other words, to live up to it so that it makes sense to people when we say, yes, we love God, we follow him. That people say, hey, that makes sense. That, that adds up. That's worthy. I don't know what that means for you personally, but it is good for us to gaze upon the unique and beautiful holiness of God. And it is right for us to draw a comparison between ourselves and God's holiness. Not ourselves and some other Christian necessarily. Not ourselves and some other standard, but us and the standard of God's holiness because we love God and we desire to please him. God's holiness is the source of his coming judgment. And it is also the standard that makes his judgment worthy for those who are going to know his wrath. But for us, it is also the source of our own judgment on our lives, our thoughts, our words, our actions. By what standard do we live? And my prayer would be that we would continue to study this text and that the Spirit would encourage our hearts. In our church, in our lives personally, we would have this fresh application and appreciation of the fact that we have been saved to serve the unique holy God. Let's live up to that standard. Let's reflect upon what we're doing in our lives and what we're saying and what, what kind of thoughts we have and ask ourselves, is, is this measuring up to the holiness of God and continue by God's grace to press on to be that witness to the world of God's holiness? Father, I...